0: Hello and welcome to another exciting edition of the School Safety Free Period. I'm Amanda Klinger. And I'm Dr. Amy Klinger. And we are with the Educator School Safety Network. We are a national nonprofit organization and we provide school safety training and professional development and resources and technical assistance to schools. And one of those resources is this very uh, live stream or podcast depending on how you're joining us. So we we like to wave to folks who are joining us live on YouTube and then uh, we say enjoy your walk or your washing dishes and folding laundry for folks who are joining us on the podcast because you probably aren't on a commute at the moment. So um, we are, you know, this podcast, we are still serious and we're still academic but we try to be a little bit less formal. Uh, So I think you had some... Things to talk to us today about the pandemic, if I'm correct.
1: Today is Semantic Distinction Day. Okay. You didn't know it, but it's not official. There's no greeting cards for it or anything like that. There could be. But um, I thought since we've been talking about, you know, a lot of things with the pandemic and a lot of things with safety related sort of stuff, I think it might be good to take a little bit of a step back and be a little bit more I don't know reflective tad bit Um, but I just have found some very interesting um, semantic distinctions that have come about that really need to kind of uh, perhaps get into our decision making uh, framework whether it's at the school level or classroom level or whatever that might be so are you ready I believe so Okay, the first one. Well, can one ever truly be ready to talk about semantic distinctions? I I
0: don't know. I guess as ready as I'll ever be.
1: We should have had t-shirts for semantic distinction. (laughs) I don't know what exactly, Um, but another time. Okay. Uh, So uh, the first one was an article that I was reading this week that I thought was, was really interesting that was talking about this really critical, in the eye of the person writing it, which I also would tend to support, this really critical distinction between what we're currently doing, which is emergency remote instruction Mm -hmm. um, versus online learning or distance learning. And we've seen lots of terms sort of bandied about. And I think in all of our podcasts, we've talked a little bit about the, um, the, the struggles that folks have been involved. And I think the parent tweets are frankly just hilarious. I mean, people are very funny. I know there's lots of downsides to social media, but there are some very funny observations coming out that are both funny, but also quite insightful. But I think it's a really interesting sort of thing to reflect on of what are we really doing right now? Are we really doing distance learning? Are we really doing online education? Are, or are we in this emergency remote mode? And I just think that's really a, a critical distinction. So I thought I would throw that out for you and I to kind of talk about what would be some of the differences? What would we want to see differently if we could transition away from emergency remote instruction to actual mm-hmm. online learning? Well, I think, you know, I can certainly speak to
0: online learning. Um, as a professor, I have always taught online. And it was never a surprise to me. It was always well ahead of time. You're going to be teaching this course and it's going to be online. And I think it's important, you know, both that we – give the, the leeway to teachers who were not given advance notice that they were going to be teaching online and were doing so um, in an emergency and, and responding to the need. Um, but we can't do that forever. I mean, we have to start making contingency plans that it's, it cannot be an emergency forever. It, we're going to have to start being able to uh, allow our teachers the time and space to set themselves up for success for online learning, not yeah. emergency remote instruction.
1: Well, and I do think one of the critical components to that, to transitioning away from emergency online, which makes it sound like you should start every class with like a siren, like, it's time for emergency online Mm -hmm. instruction. But I think one of the things that really needs to happen for us to transition away from that is to be more intentional. Um, We had a lot of instruction, emergency online instruction that was sort of default instruction. Mm -hmm. I don't have any other choice but to do A. And I don't know what else to do, so I'm going to do B. But mm-hmm. I'm not being critical of folks for doing that because, frankly, the fact that you're able to even in any way enact mm-hmm. emergency online instruction is is pretty <clears throat> phenomenal. Of what mm-hmm. happens when you set educators loose and give them a mission. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's right up there with you know Navy SEALs and you know mm-hmm. disaster mobilization teams that you're able to move an entire sector of the po- of the population completely online in literally a matter of days. But I think that being intentional and being able to make choices about what we do is one piece. I think the other piece is really trying to strike that balance between we're not going to ever be able to replicate sitting in a classroom together. Mm -hmm. So how do we get the best of both worlds? How do we hold those things in the the face-to-face experience that are so crucial that we must have that interaction of reading a story and how do we jettison the things that are not valuable about face-to-face online instructions and again if i'm using a kindergarten motif here you know the the face-to-face interaction on the the classroom rug as we read a story versus 25 kids lined up at the pencil sharpener taking 25 minutes to put on our boots to go out to the bus, those sort of things we don't miss in the online uh, reality. So how do we get the best of those experiences? I think part of the problem is we have difficulty identifying what is the best about the distance learning piece. We all, as an online teacher and a a face-to-face teacher, I can very easily identify the the critical, wonderful components of a face to face interaction. It's harder and we have fewer experiences identifying the really good parts of online instruction where you as a primarily an online instructor may find that to be much less of an arduous ask. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, and I think it's also important, even in this discussion that we've just been having, we've sort of fallen into the pattern of thinking that either we're having normal school face-to-face instruction or we're online. And as we've talked about on this podcast and in other things, we're going to need to have that be, that's going to have to exist on a continuum. And it might be that we're going to have normal school for two weeks and then we need to be transitioning to remote learning for two weeks and that we need to be able to find or We've talked about staggered schedules that maybe we'll have half the class will be here on Monday and Wednesday and half the class will be in the building on Tuesday and Thursday and on the other days folks are learning remotely. And so um, that's going to need to be part of that creative problem solving is figuring out what are our constraints and then how can we maximize the the opportunity that that we're afforded.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I haven't heard a lot of conversation about the strengths of distance learning Mm -hmm. that had other than. The thing we always rail against in school safety, which is the convenience of adults. Mm -hmm. Well, it's convenient to have online classes, and it gives us flexibility in our schedule, Mm -hmm. but we need to mine or look through or sort through Mm -hmm. and find what's the stuff about online distance learning that's really good for kids, Mm -hmm. as opposed to convenient, cost effective, whatever those other things are and so i'm not seeing that like i think we need to start digging around in the drawer of online instruction and start pulling out the stuff that this really makes sense yeah. for kids well i think and that's if, not happening i mean yet. i think if nothing
0: else one of the easiest ones is the is the different pacing you know mm-hmm. you have different students learn at different paces Um, and how, you know, online or remote instruction is so much more conducive to that than being in a classroom. And, you know, I remember that from my own school experience, my own school experiences. I think I would have um, done, I would have been very well served by being able to move through material at at more of an individualized pace. Um, And so that's, I think, an easy one to think of, how can we leverage This opportunity that we have of well, we have to be doing remote learning. So how can we leverage that? That making sure that students are able to to work at a at a pace that fits
1: them. And the self pacing you're talking about goes both ways. Mm -hmm. Um, I can remember in an online statistics class way back in the day when it first became online the joy of being able to rewind that video and have her explain mm-hmm. for the 18th time how to do this problem mm-hmm. that I couldn't wrap my head around. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's a really good point that it goes um, you know, to both sides of that. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I haven't heard discussed and you just alluded to it a, a little bit, Is, you know, we've talked about this half and half or staggered. You know, some people come to school on Monday, Wednesday, Mm -hmm. some people come Tuesday, Thursday. I haven't heard a lot of discussion about uh, the idea of doing that simultaneously. So Mm -hmm. I have 25 kids in a class, and half of them are at home online, and half of them are in the class. And we're all together doing things together. Some people are watching it. Some people are doing it. Mm -hmm. And then we toggle back and forth to that the next day. Mm -hmm. Because I think what I'm beginning to hear is more of these obstacles of, hey, if you want to have small class size, you're going to have to hire twice as many teachers and we can't afford it. Well, maybe we can do it with our existing um, numbers if we can be more creative about being able to do things simultaneously, having online instruction and face-to-face happening at the same moment. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen a lot of discussion about that. Yeah. So that's our first uh, distinction. The second one is the difference between physical distance and social distance. You And we've talked about this a little bit briefly. We've talked a lot about, you You know, it's, it's a new buzzword, uh, I guess, of social distancing, and we want all those sort of things. But I think we need to be really cognizant of that really subtle but important distinction in schools. We are not trying to keep kids from being social with each other because that's a critical part of their school experience. Mm -hmm. And I'm concerned about the the, that we are creating this idea of you can't talk to other people. You can't be involved in other people. We need to keep this sort of closed um, society, which is already a problem, frankly, in some Mm -hmm. secondary schools. Mm -hmm. And we know from from our work in safety what some of the terrible outcomes of that isolation are. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important for us to kind of deliberately choose the discussion of physical distance as opposed to social distance
0: Mm -hmm. maybe a way for the physical distance you know those things where it's like an inflatable clear plastic thing you know and they play soccer like you're in that ball you could ever you could put all the kids in one
1: that was like three feet and then well you know what do kids like more than the floor is lava so if the floor is lava and it's six feet of lava in between us i mean okay Maybe that, yeah. maybe that works. But I do think it's important for us to not, again, default to it's more convenient to mm-hmm. keep kids apart. It's more convenient to do this and that. We have to make sure that if we're going to remove some social opportunities, that we're going to somehow replace them or provide opportunities that are not physical but are social. And I'm not sure, you know, I, I, and I would hate to see that default to purely a technological Yeah. Uh, piece. So anything else to say about that?
0: No I think you know you talk about defaulting to only technology solution and and you talk about the you know the the dangers of isolation. um, Whether that's in in high school students who perpetrate crimes um, because of extreme isolation and other factors um, or whether that's just adults who feel very isolated. Um, I think we you're right we cannot just throw Only a technology solution at this. I think the for the social part of it. Yeah, yeah. I think the last you know ten years of having smartphones and the accompanying decline in mental health metrics, generally speaking, um, would indicate to us that you know technology cannot replace face-to-face interactions, and it can supplant it, and it can help us, and it obviously. Um, A lot of technology has helped people during this difficult time, but in a long term sense, we're going to need to find a way to have technology help when we really, really need it and find alternative ways to connect with people as humans, um, as we have for thousands of years, because
1: if you have a kid that has social issues or, you know, you've got somebody that's been sitting in their house since March and it's now August. And they've been in their house or they have been, you know, an only child or one kid or I mean, there have not been opportunities for taking turns and having to wait and doing all the things that we want kids to do to be Mm -hmm. able to have appropriate social interactions. You've got kids that are getting some deeply ingrained habits Mm -hmm. just by nature of the environment in which they've had to sit in for, you know, two or three or four months. And so I think that social part of it is going to be even more critical not less critical yeah when we finally get back into face-to-face sort of situations not to mention you know spending half my life with middle school there is no such thing as a social distance or a physical distance (sighs) in middle school it's essentially having a school with you know 350 puppies i was gonna Uh, say it's like a puppy pile one big puppy pile (laughs) So, and
0: then finally... I don't uh, envy the job of whoever has to disinfect the middle schools.
1: (laughs) So finally, uh, that's essentially every mom goes, yeah, I get it. I just do the one bedroom, let alone all of them. Uh, So finally, I think it's important to have this little bit of a distinction between what is doable, meaning we could do it, what's feasible, and then what's desirable. And I'm referring here to an article that I read that was a survey um, we're In the UK, so mm-hmm. full disclosure, um, and it was they were surveying teachers in the UK about what they felt was feasible to do um, as they transitioned back to school.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'll start with the extremes. The one thing that everyone agreed on, 72 percent, so it's a significant percent of people, thought that it was absolutely impossible to do social distancing in a school. Mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of surprising, Um Because I I would not have anticipated that that would be uh, the thing, Hmm. I guess. um, And and I'll read just briefly from the article. Social distancing would pretty much be impossible to manage in schools strictly and consistently all of the time because of the constraints on spaces and the reality that there is a mix of age groups and behaviors. Yeah, okay. If you want to be a purist about social distancing, it probably is impossible. But I don't think it is impossible. I think it is feasible to some extent. And again, if we can subscribe to the metric that some social distancing is better than nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, So there was that one. I thought that was very interesting. Um, But what they did agree that they thought was pretty feasible and doable were staggered breaks, uh, dividing up the week, as you suggested with kids coming certain days of the week, um, bringing smaller numbers of high risk populations, Um, Or, you know, that have intensive needs back Mm -hmm. first to try to close some of those achievement gaps. And those were all between 66 and 69 Mm percent that they felt were really significant and doable. Mm -hmm. Um, Less than 50 (laughs) percent. So these are the things where half people go, no, you can't do that. Mm Uh, less than 50% were discouraging parents from coming into the school, felt like that was not going to happen. Uh, reducing class sizes, felt like that was not going to happen. And staggering pupils' um, uh, schedules and doing creative, more creative things with scheduling than just like, you know, the staggered start. I think they meant the start and arrival times. And I think that's really interesting because those three things um, with less than 50% <clears throat> feeling it's... Feasible or doable, I think, is really predicated on thinking from February of 2020, yeah. where we went. Oh, parents would never stand for that. Well, I, I get. You know, it's important to hear voices
0: from the field in the survey. But if you would have asked, hey, can we do uh, emergency distance learning, emergency remote instruction on four days' notice, 100% of people would
1: say no, we couldn't. So. Yeah, if you asked that on February one, you would have had a hundred. Yes, one hundred and fifty percent saying nope, not it's possible. Percentages work, but yes, uh,
0: I, I, yeah, it sounds sounds difficult, but educators manage to do this.
1: I, but what I think is interesting about that is, you know, the, again, using this doable, feasible, and, and desirable sort of mm-hmm. metric, um, we don't have the limitations we had before. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a parent right now would be—I, I, you know—and I don't—I'm not actively homeschooling my kids, but I'm going to go out on a limb and go. There's a lot of parents right now that if you could take their kid for like an hour <laughs> and do some instruction that they didn't have to do, that would be pretty good. So it is kind of a sliding scale. Our expectations have significantly <laughs> diminished, but also I think parents have begun to realize that the traditional custodial function of, I give you my kid from eight to five, Mm -hmm. and I don't worry about it in between, that that is largely um, significantly diminished. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think a lot of these things become much more feasible, but then the question becomes, just because we can do it doesn't mean we should. So now we're into the the, the metric of desirable versus just feasible. Mm -hmm. I think that's where we get into some more difficult conversations. Cool. Well, I think
0: uh, I think that about wraps it up for today. Um, if you have any questions, you can always reach out to us on social media. Um, you can talk, find any of the other resources we talked about uh, on our website, uh, www.eschoolsafety.org. Um as, as always, if you are looking for other content where we're talking about the pandemic or if you're talking about school safety from before the pandemic, you can always check out our YouTube channel with the different videos and all of the podcasts and
1: resources that we have there. Um, anything else you wanted to add? Um, just that, you know, the school safety piece and the pandemic piece are not mutually exclusive. We need to always keep that in mind. We cannot just say we're going to focus on the pandemic and worry about school safety later. Yeah. We, need doing, we need to be able to chew gum and walk at the same time.
0: Yeah. So there you have it. And uh, until next time. Thanks.